From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. NFL Sports Talk Football. All-Star Wrestling. All-Star Wrestling is sanctioned by the AWA. The American Hello everyone and welcome to episode 103 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host Peter Winson. And today I'll be taking a look at the AWA. Now If I want to figure out what date this is, I don't really know because some of the records are spotty at best. It's like trying to find out the actual birth date of a Cuban baseball player. This is a taping that was done for the St. Louis market, or at least the wraparound interviews are promoting matches at the Keele Auditorium in February of 1984. So there are three different dates that I have associated with this show. If you take out the St. Louis parts, this aired in Minneapolis on Christmas 1983, or it was taped on Christmas 1983. I can't quite tell which one. On YouTube, it is labeled January 14th, 1984, and I've also seen another place where this aired January 21st, 1984. Could think maybe that it was delayed getting to St. Louis or whatever, because the show at the Keel was on February 3rd, and we have a lot of promos coming up for that one. But this is a rather interesting show because this is the AWA right at the time, right after Hulk Hogan, Dr. D. David Schultz are out the door. Mean Gene Oakland is out the door and in the WWF in January of 84, but he is still on this show as the ring announcer because they had taped stuff with him, and you can't really edit out the ring announcer unless you're really good at editing, and there are certain TV production things that the AWA was good at, but maybe maybe not that sort of thing because that would require some real trickery unless you wanted to just dub in another voice or something like that. But anyway... I'm very curious to look at this show, and I hope I don't regret it because there's a lot of star power that isn't there anymore, but there are a few familiar names, at least from a promo perspective and a couple of the in-ring matches as well. But let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsmallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsmallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter at Pod. that is at Pod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. More on pro wrestling only a little bit later in the program and everything you can find there. Now, if you have enjoyment of professional wrestling, one of the things that may have drawn you in at some point or at least kept you watching is the characters involved. And I was thinking the other night when I was going out to dinner with my wife to meet up with some friends, like, who who are some of the great characters in my life? Like, I have a lot of friends who are maybe interesting people, but they're not like characters, that's kind of like a, you know, a little bit more outsized than your normal person in terms of personality. And I thought, you know, Keithy, the voice of Greetings from Allentown, is probably the preeminent character 
in my life from a storytelling perspective and everything else. And it's a good thing. I was going to have dinner with him as part of that group. And his stories did not disappoint. He started a little slow at dinner because he said he's been smoking grass lately. I don't know if I can particularly endorse that. It's just a little concerned because he said he was forgetting certain things. So I know that it's legal in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts now. But hey, I'm not. I'm not going to judge because people can, you know, make their own determinations and value judgments, all that. But one of the things that makes him such a character is his descriptions of his mother who is very much, I guess, an Estelle Costanza type, because his impersonation of his mother is very much like Estelle Costanza. I'm not taking advice from some girl from Long Island. You take that type of voice and you combine it with a Boston accent, and it can lead to some hilarious results, such as in our teenage years, apparently, our mutual friend Chris, he goes over to Keithy's house and they apparently there was some sort of McDonald's that opened in Malden at the time, which I don't understand why they would do this, but they gave out these buttons. And I'll post a picture of it because it's just really strange because you think, well, did they do this for every McDonald's that opens? But this one, it said McDonald's Heart Malden or Malden Heart McDonald's, but there was a big heart on the button. And Chris, for whatever reason, decided to wear it on his person that day. So he comes over, and Keithy's mother sees him, and she says to him, What do you have that heart on for? Now, (laughs) she was saying, What do you have that heart on for? But what it sounded like, she said, was, What do you have that heart on for? And Chris misheard it and (laughs) ran upstairs and was like, Oh, my God, did I just hear whatever? But... Oh, my goodness. I love stories like that. And I'm very happy that when, when Keithy turns 40 later this year, there's um, preliminary plans for a birthday roast. Now, I don't know how good I would be at such an event because the last time I performed at somebody's birthday roast, it, 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 it was mixed results for me. I got a few laughs, but maybe making jokes about TWA Flight 800 on Long Island wasn't in the best taste. You know, with the particular crowd that that was there, I, I don't I don't know, but hey, maybe I've cleaned up my act a little bit over the last ten years, and you know, and maybe this time I won't be completely blotto as I'm giving my speech. Oh, we also went to Kings after we went to some Mexican restaurant. We went to this place called Kings where I lost in NBA Jam, which was a source of great embarrassment for me. It was against the computer, too, and it was against the Dallas Mavericks, so I couldn't even beat one team. But I did make it to stage 16 in Galaga, despite the fact that my shooting percentage in that game, which they they give you... I was always amazed playing Galaga as a kid that it would calculate the number of shots fired and the number of shots where you hit. It felt really advanced for 1987. I was below 50%. I see these dudes who get like 80%... On YouTube, and they get to like stage 134 or whatever, which I didn't even know existed. But the real highlight of my weekend was on Sunday seeing the Boston Bruins finally beat the Colorado Avalanche, which only means something to me because I had never actually seen them beat Colorado. So now I have seen the Bruins beat all 30 of the other NHL teams and 31 if you include Hartford as a separate entity from the Carolina Hurricanes. All right, so AWA 1984, they lost a ton of talent. At the start of the year. And Oakland is still here on the tape. But he's ready to go as well. Bobby Heenan still very much there with Nick Bockwinkle. 
it seems to be one of those things where a casual fan always sort of assumes that Heenan left. I think anybody who watches this stuff closely, people who just know that Heenan came from the AWA may assume that he have come in at the same time as Okerlund because, you know, they're so close and they're so linked and they always seem to be in the same place at the same time. But Heenan staying there was one reason why the AWA actually kind of stayed afloat through much of 1984. He eventually leaves in September. So he is there most of the year. But you have guys like the Road Warriors coming in in their heels, but people would actually pay to see them. But the loss of all this star power, I think it's a lagging indicator where the live event attendance, it's going to take a little while to drop for it to kind of show its effects. Like what I've always said about TV ratings, where if you run a great angle, the TV ratings aren't going to just jump up, you know, in that one week or the next week. It's going to take time. And it's the same going in the other direction, which explains WCW in late 98 and early 99, when it had already turned sour, but it, you really don't start, the panic doesn't set in until the summer of 1999 and Bischoff gets fired late in the year. They have no lead baby face when Hulk Hogan leaves. And it's kind of like if an NFL team went into a game with no backup quarterback. And I mean, where are they going to turn? You have to scramble. And scrambling, I don't think, is one of Vern Gagne's strengths as a wrestling promoter, where something happens like, oh, we got to put this guy in this slot and we got to do it in a hurry. Because the TV is rather dry. They don't run a lot of big angles. There's no real feature matches. Everything on this show is an enhancement match. And nothing really happens, as it turns out. So, what? But what do you do for your lead babyface? And what he turns to in the short term is bringing in the crusher again out of retirement, which is just insane to me, even though it did work for a little while, I will admit. But this is a guy who was born in 1926 that you're using in 1984. This guy was born when Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States. God bless his soul. Obviously, you're going to need to find something a little bit more viable in the long term than a 57-year-old man as your lead babyface. And Oakland goes out the door. Ken Resnick steps in and fills the role. He's perfectly fine in that, but obviously, he is no mean Gene Oakland. And eventually, it takes some time but they turn one of their long-standing heels babyface, and that would be Jerry Blackwell. But that takes to the middle of the year. And Blackwell is one of the guys who stayed. He was going to go to the WWF and decided not to. As the story goes, he showed up for guys were recording promos. And I want to say that this sounds like a St. Louis thing because Blackwell would have been known there. It doesn't really matter where it was, and he decided that this just wasn't for him, so he went back to the AWA where he wrestled until 1989 because his body started breaking down later in the 80s. But it shows how Gagne didn't really have much of a plan. Vern didn't even have a plan B, really, let alone like a plan C. And it feels like a guy like Vince, for all his foibles, at least has contingency plans for if something happens as i said this tv is a bit dull with without any big matches and without any big angles so i've asked myself why am i doing this show (laughs) because i usually like to seek out when stuff happens but the alternative to that is just take a promotion in a time period that is rather interesting because 
guys have left or guys are coming in or maybe it's guys that I've never talked about before like a Billy Robinson who has a match on the show. I mean, I have not done a lot of 70s stuff and he hangs around the AWA into the 80s, but it's it's not like there, I've had a lot of opportunity to talk about somebody like him. Ken Patera and Jerry Blackwell. Patera has a singles match on the show, but they are the AWA Tag Team Champions at this time in the midst of a pretty lengthy reign. Baron Von Raschke is on the show. I don't know if it's Raschke or Raschka. It, it seems to alternate between the two of them. It's kind of like Bull Nakano and Bull Nakano. I, I've heard both of them, and I've never really uh, figured out which one it's supposed to be. The Baron is a baby face here, which is always a little weird given what the heart of his gimmick actually is. But I guess it just shows that people can be redeemed from their racist past or whatever. I'm thinking that's that's very topical nowadays, I think. And Jesse Ventura is on this show as well. So like I said, there are some names that would be familiar later on. And I knew that there would be a Nick Bockwinkle and Bobby Heenan promo that going in, I was just praying that it was going to save the show. So we'll see how that goes. For AWA television from a date that I can't quite put my finger on. I'm probably just going to label it as January 21st, 84, because most people have the results of that airing right then. As this is episode 103, I'm going to be taking a look at a few moments from the world of sports from the year 2003. Passed off near side, Sikora tried to draw it around, couldn't, and down on the ice. Is that Paul Correa? Yes, it is. Paul Correa oh, leveled. Oh, my. This is the first open ice big hit that Scott Stevens has thrown in the series. Paul Correa landed on his back and didn't move. And the fans on their feet because Paul Correa has just come back from the dressing room wow. and onto the bench. Into the zone. Sakura kicked it out, got it back near side Correa. Correa, the fans want one. There's a lot there from the 2003 Stanley Cup Final that would not happen if it was today. And it's got nothing to do with New Jersey and Anaheim not being very good teams. Let me try to unpack all of this from Game 6 of the series. You get Paul Correa, who had already distributed the puck, coming across the middle of the ice at the opposing blue line. Scott Stevens comes up, nails him in the head. Well, that's problem number one. He also had his, he hit him with his elbow, but his elbow was tucked, so it's a bit of a gray area, but they would definitely call a check to the head in today's hockey. So Stevens would get five minutes for that. He also would probably get suspended for game seven, I would think, just based on the fact that it was a second after Korea had passed the puck. So he didn't even have the puck. Aaron Rome was suspended for four games. In 2011, for a similar thing, although Aaron Rome left his feet and Scott Stevens did not. Now, Korea, under today's protocols, would have to go back to the, quote, quiet room for 15 minutes to be monitored for a concussion. So he would at least miss the rest of the period, those 13 minutes left in the second period. However, he comes back four minutes of gameplay later, and he goes back out there, and he scores that memorable goal to give him a 4-1 to lead. They go to Game Seven. New Jersey ends up winning three to nothing. But it's a classic example of a sports moment that was not that long ago, 
but yet those set of circumstances could never happen again because of education about concussions and all that. And I just want to throw in that both of those guys ended up making the Hockey Hall of Fame, Stevens and Korea. So they go right into it with this particular AWA tape. There's no intro of any kind, and we see Patera and Blackwell, the Sheiks, in the ring in the midst of their long reign, as I mentioned earlier. So our first bout will be Patera alone taking on Jimmy Dew. Now, it was very hard to find any information on Jimmy Dew because if you anytime I would do a search, because his last name is spelled D-O-O, I would get a bunch of doo-wop stuff. And I don't understand. There's nothing about Jimmy, even though he wrestled in the AWA for quite a long time. You get a lot of videos of his matches. He doesn't even have a cage match link, which is strange because he wrestled as an enhancement in the AWA for a really long time. It's kind of like if Ricky Ataki had no cage match page. It's just really sort of strange to me. As for Ken Patera, he was really great in the early 1980s. When you look at it, every territory that he would go to, he was sort of the king of the secondary belts because he would go somewhere and he wouldn't, he wouldn't win the world title at any point. But he won the NWA Missouri title, which was ordinarily a stepping stone to the NWA world title. He won the Georgia title when he was there. He won the Mid-Atlantic title in the late 1970s. So he's the champion of the Crockett Territory. And then he was the Intercontinental Champion in the WWF in the early 1980s. And twice in the AWA in 83. So... A little bit before this time, he won the AWA International title. Kind of had a swap going on with Lawler and Austin Idol and all that. But this gimmick here, it's so hilariously ridiculous to look back with these two white guys. One of them from Oregon and the other from Georgia. And they're both dressed up as sheiks, like they're going in for ab scam or something like that. Back in my youth, before the movie American Hustle kind of went deep into what that was, I remember finding out, like, oh, okay, some dudes dressed up as a bunch of Arab sheiks and exposed corruption of congressmen. Like, wow, that is so weird. That occurred 79, 80, so it was a couple of years before this. But it's apparently it was the first time in history that government officials have been, like, caught on camera actually taking bribes. Really sort of strange, but then again, the technology of hidden cameras really hadn't come along much before that. Our announcer for this program, we do not have a color guy, so it is Rod Trodgard all by himself, and he he's actually not that bad. His voice could be a little weird at times, but it, it, when you get to 1987, he's wearing the sunglasses indoors because his eyes always looked a little bit weird. Jerry Blackwell gives kind of a generic promo before the match where like, oh, all the fans are here to see me, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, Jerry, that's, that's wonderful. Why don't you, why don't you say something like, this is for the women who came to see me and the men who want to be me. And then Jerry Blackwell does the grind. Actually, no, I do not want to see that. So as I said, this show is actually for St. Louis, but it's not taped in St. Louis. It, the, the crowd, and I'm going to get into the crowd as we go along here, they're not exactly the most electric people in the world, except for a bunch of cat calls we're going to hear during the show. The AWA TV crowds, just in watching them over the years, they're very blah. I, I know in some of the TV tapings you'd see empty seats in the front row, but it's not like 
the AWA's television was known for having hot crowds or anything like that. Patera starts off with a big slam and an elbow, and he goes for a pin. And we get a situation that actually recurs on this program where the referee is distracted by Blackwell on the outside and doesn't actually count the pin. So Patera just pulls Dew up. Very strange. I don't know what the hell that was supposed to be. So he tosses Jimmy Dew to the outside. And this is where I noticed that Jimmy is a, is a bit of a chunky fellow. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, because I prefer my enhancement guys to be a little chunky. And he gets slammed on the floor, so maybe the layer of fat would have helped him there. And Trongard actually makes an interesting point. May well have injured this man, Jimmy Do, very seriously. This is not a ring apron or the ring. This is a cement floor. See, here's the point that has to be made, is there's no padding on the outside of the ring, which I'm sure is what was stopping Greg Gagne and his matches from doing space-flying tiger drops. I'm sure that's the only thing that held him up from doing that. But anyway, so if you really want to do damage to a guy, you got to slam him on the floor. You can't do that nowadays, so that's why on indie shows, all you see is guys doing moves on the apron, and you see these Canadian destroyers or whatever on the apron. So that's that's kind of an explanation how you could tie it back to modern wrestling. He finally slams Jimmy Dew back into the ring, a vertical souple, and I'd actually forgotten that Trongard is one of the announcers who kind of apes that Gordon Soley thing. And Patera picks up the victory, the pin with one foot a la his future SummerSlam 88 opponent, Bad News Brown. One thing that's weird is not just Patera and Blackwell doing the ab scam deal, but also that... The future General Adnan, Sheik Adnan LKC, is there as well. I mean, he can legitimately dress up in that because he was actually born in Iraq. So there's a certain credibility, I guess, if there's one guy who's real and there's two guys who aren't. But it's odd seeing Patera and him together because flashback to 1977 in the WWF, and you got Ken Patera, and I think I covered this briefly in the episode I did on Championship Wrestling from 1977, I think it was episode 70, if you go back into the archives, Patera had injured Billy Whitewolf with the swinging full Nelson and put him out of commission. And Billy Whitewolf, of course, would go on and become Sheik Dad non LKC. So nice to see they put all that aside and became friends, despite all that unpleasantness seven years earlier. Oh, my goodness. Don Zimmer and Pedro Martinez. Oh, that's awful. Don Zimmer, a 72-year-old man, went into Pedro Martinez's face, and Pedro Martinez threw him down. The audio of that isn't going to do it justice, especially for something that my wife calls the greatest moment in the history of our sport. So Don Zimmer charges at Pedro Martinez. What the hell is Pedro supposed to do? What is he supposed to, like, line up like a fist fight with Don Zimmer? He just sort of dodged him, and Zim just sort of fell down and rolled. And luckily somebody stopped him, or else he would have, you know, gone into the dugout. He'd probably still be rolling, even though he died years ago. I don't know. And But McCarver and Buck... Who get a lot of who got a lot of unwarranted criticism through the years? 
Their call of that was terrible because earlier you get McCarver pretending like he can read Pedro Martinez's lips when he's pointing at his head. Pedro is saying, I'll remember that. And he's basically saying, oh, he's saying he's going to hit him in the head. Hey, shut the hell up, Tim McCarver. I heard from a source that when you went to the bathroom in the press box in that series, you, you didn't even wash your hands. You just did like a cursory splash on the way out. Absolutely disgraceful. It was one of the worst calls by these guys. Oh, Zim's almost 80. Oh, give me a break. If you're going to charge at the opposing team's starting pitcher, you're going to have to accept what comes to you. And Zim was very apologetic the next day. So you guys were totally right. The, the call of that was just completely out of line. What the hell? All right, maybe Pedro shouldn't have thrown at Kareem Garcia a little bit earlier on. And yeah, maybe Clemens didn't throw at Manny Ramirez. It was just high. It wasn't all that tight. But my God. What's funny about that is that was the day I was moving into my apartment in Las Vegas and I'm going in and out and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like moving stuff in. I moved the TV in first so I could watch the game as I'm doing this and I, I'm like carrying a box and I come back in and I see the thing happen where the, the bench clearing and then Pedro ch- gets charged at by Don Zimmer and all that goes on and I immediately had to call my dad and be like, could you give me some context as to what is going on here? Like why Don Zimmer is charging at Pedro. What a crazy scene. And I'm not done litigating that particular series. So we go to Ken Resnick and they are promoting the upcoming show at the Keel Auditorium on February 3rd. And to go back to my point earlier about Resnick, he's perfectly fine. He shows up in the WWF in 1986, in that Gene Oakland role, of course, because he's sort of like the Dick, Fla- uh, Dick Slater to the Terry Funk that is Mean Gene Oakland, if you know what I mean. He's all right, but it's kind of like if the Anaheim, excuse me, Los Angeles Angels replaced Mike Trout with John Jay. I mean, John Jay is a perfectly good fourth outfielder who, you know, can, can get a key hit here and there, can play all three outfield positions. But for God's sakes, he, yeah, he's adequate, but he's not Mike Trout. Okay, so Resnick trying his best here, and he mentions that this show is airing on Channel 30. And I had mentioned when I did Wrestling at the Chase, the WWF version several episodes ago, that they had kind of taken the spot on KPLR, Channel 11. Channel 30 is KDNL-TV. For for whatever reason, I love the history of TV stations, and this always sends me down a rabbit hole. KDNL-TV is now Sinclair-owned in that market, so I guess there's a mild tie to wrestling and Ring of Honor from that perspective. They are the ABC affiliate for the city of St. Louis, and actually one of the weaker ABC affiliates in the country because it is a UHF station. It was sold in 1989 to that Barry Baker character that you saw on the Wrestling at the Chase. He was a part of a company called River City Broadcasting, which I may or may not have mentioned. I I can't remember. But the interesting thing about this Channel 30 in St. Louis, to me, is they went years. I want to say it was like 10 years that I read without any local newscasts. And I find that interesting because if you look at like your local station, they'll run news on the weekend for like four hours in the morning. And they'll try and fit as many news shows in as they can. And the reason is that's an easy way to raise ad revenue, especially when you get into like an election season. And I'm kind of dreading this, living near New Hampshire. You got people announcing for president. You're going to start seeing those presidential ads on the Boston stations really soon. And that's, it's an ad drive. It's a revenue driver for a TV station. So to not have news on there. It's just really strange, especially if you are an affiliate of ABC. So this battle royal 
that they're going to have at the Keel is a $35,000 Battle Royal. The WWF one was only 30000 that they held on February 10th, so a week later. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's one of those dick measuring contests that wrestling promotions like to have. So we bring out the high flyers, Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. I, I got to save a thought on Jim Brunzel because there's a show I want to do from 1990 where he's in the WWF and he has, well, I don't want I don't want to give it away, but it is basically indicative of what should have been Jim Brunzel's destiny, and I think that there's a debate that could be had about that. But as a promo, and this is going to go into my point that I'll make at that time. Brunzel, a little bit bland as a promo, I'd say. Well, that's right. It's an opportunity for 18 wrestlers to win $35,000 and also have a, a chance to get in the ring with the NWA World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair. And that's uh, enough incentive for anybody. And it is for me. And uh, I know this Buck Robley has caused a lot of wrestlers a lot of trouble and a lot of frustrations in his years in professional wrestling. So I'm taking uh, each match as they come. Don't worry, Jimmy. Someday you'll learn to substitute in the word superstars in place of wrestlers. It'd be funny if somebody at the WWE Network just decided to troll everybody by taking anytime somebody said the word wrestlers and dubbing in superstars or just bleeping it out. That would piss a lot of people off, I would think. So Greg Gagne is actually on crutches, and it took me a second to actually notice it because you could you could see it under his arm, but it's not like they show like a full body length shot. And I'll let you be the judge of what Greg says here. Is this enough to make you want to go to the Keel Auditorium? Well, this past week in St. Paul, Minnesota, I had the opportunity, we're supposed to have the opportunity to wrestle Sheik Adnan LKC, who is manager of the tag team champions, the world tag team champions, Ken Patera and Jerry Blackwell. Well, Jim broke the leg of Sheik Adnan LKC this past week. As a result, my match was a forfeit match in St. Paul. Patera Blackwell entered the ring, jumped on me, tried to break my leg didn't quite get the job done but they did stretch some ligaments i'm going to be on crutches for a couple weeks but down the line jim and i at one time held the world's tag team championship and we want to step in the ring with blackwell and patera whether it be here in st louis or chicago amphitheater or uh, the pavilion or the rosemont horizon wherever it may be or whether it be the von braun civic center in huntsville or whether it be the memorial hall in kansas city or whether it be that bus station that looks like an East German prison in downtown Denver. I, I just wanted him to keep naming places because that was the only entertaining thing about what Greg Gagne had to say. Ninety nine Luft Balloons was only at number thirty three at that point, but it was rising up the charts. And this is something we need to simplify music in this way. We don't need ninety nine red balloons, the English version of that song, because it is clearly inferior. Nobody's asking for it. Everybody wants to hear the German version. So wh- why do you even have both? I don't understand it. Let one of them fall out of print and just be evaporated and only play that one. That's that's all that I ask go right into our next match buddy lane taking on billy robinson two guys that i don't think have been on greetings from allentown in the past buddy lane he would go on and become a promoter in a maritime promotion i think it's called real action wrestling in the early part of the 21st century 
Lane was a veteran of many Canadian promotions in the AWA. There's a long slam wrestling article on him that's out there that I want to say was published around 2001. One note about him that I thought was interesting, he was the referee for the famous Nick Bockwinkle versus Ric Flair match that was held in 1986 at the Winnipeg Arena. Billy Robinson, on the other hand, I know him best because uh, you don't really, I don't really see a lot of his in-ring work. I'm a WWF kid. He's not a fit at all for that promotion because he was never there. So they kind of knew that they weren't. That was not going to be a marriage that would work. I know him best from the movie The Wrestler from 1974 as the opponent of Vern Gagne or Mike Bullard, as he's known in that film. And there's a very simple talking point about Billy Robinson, which is if he came along now, there's not a chance in hell that a guy like him would go into pro wrestling. He would have gone to a UFC or a Bellator. That, that is what his career path would have been. So he was kind of ahead of his time in that way because when he's coming along in the 1970s, that's not really an option. He's about 25 years too early. And it kind of made me think, that because he would have gravitated towards that, I do wonder, guys from the world of MMA who went to that exclusively, if you rewind the clock 25 or 30 years, which ones of those guys would have ended up going into wrestling? I think it would have to be like the bigger guys, because I don't think you know a lightweight or whatever would have made it, especially with Vince, because you know, we all know how he feels about smaller guys. It's just interesting to think about how the rise of MMA might have actually diverted guys who would have been talented from the world of wrestling. I don't think that's why in this century we haven't seen a boom like there was in 98 and 99. But it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about that maybe maybe it can be explored in greater detail another time. They mentioned that Robinson had regained the British heavyweight title, which I looked into. And the AWA had a British title but not since 1979, so I couldn't quite figure out what Trongard was saying. I'm having a lot of issues these last few episodes with these European titles. You got Steve Casey last week, and apparently I had the wrong Steve Casey. I don't think there should be allowed to have two Steve Caseys. It's kind of like how when Mark Lynn Baker is coming along, he actually adds Lynn which was his middle name to his last name because it was already a Mark Baker. I'm sorry, there should be a wrestling like database or whatever. And if your name is Steve Casey, you have to be Steve Lynn Casey or something like that. It's amazing that there isn't another Billy Robinson or whatever. Side headlock and Robinson counters by just suplexing the hell out of him, but more of like a belly-to-belly, not the normal back suplex that you would ordinarily see in that spot. A takedown, and they kind of end up in the rope, so there's a break there. Very Matt-oriented is Billy Robinson. And Lane scores, he gets a top wrist lock, and this is very boring stuff here. Even I can't get into what's going on. And there's uh, you get a boring cat call from the crowd by this one guy, which I found kind of funny. So they go into the test of strength, which... Robinson turned, I don't even know how to describe what he did, but through some sort of you know sorcery, he turns it into a move to start working on Buddy Lane's leg. And 
Lane gets out of it. Side headlock again. Apparently, they are trying to appeal to St. Louis with all these side headlocks, just like the wrestling at the Chase show several episodes ago. He holds it, holds it, holds it, holds it, holds it, holds it. I like mat work and all, but there's just way too much of it here to the point where it just becomes Buddy Lane gets a side headlock and we're just waiting for Billy Robinson to actually counter it. And you got the hecklers too, which is probably the most entertaining part of this match. He twists out of a headlock on the mat, which was mildly interesting. And Billy Robinson hits the rude awakening neck breaker to kind of really describe it for a more modern audience. That picks up a two count. And then we go to another side headlock yet again, which Billy Robinson turns into a backbreaker. And that is how he picks up the one, two, three. And all I wrote in my notes on this was, thank God, because this was dull even for AWA television standards. Pictures of the greatest in all-star wrestling. Ideal for gift-giving, they're tremendous. Here's what you do, send $10 to All-Star Marketing. Post Office Box 35364, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55435. Allow four to six weeks for delivery. $10 gets it all. All the best in 84. This really has to be seen to be believed because I had never heard of this until I saw this on this particular video. Long sleeve shirts that the AWA is selling and it's got the AWA logo that everybody knows sort of like where the breast pocket would be. And down the sleeves, you have headshots of various wrestlers from the AWA. On the left sleeve, you have all the heels. And on the right sleeve, you have all the baby faces, which I found hilarious that they segregated that out. But I guess it makes sense from a certain perspective. And I looked, and yes, Hulk Hogan's headshot is on there. I don't know when they would have put this all together, but Hogan gave notice, he says, on November 22nd, 1983. So if it went into production after that, who who knows? But all I could think was, holy shit, somebody bought this. But I can't find one out there. there. There's none on the internet. Maybe I need to search like eBay or something like that. But this is just crazy. And Jim Brunzel and Greg Gagne are their models for this particular thing. It's absolutely insane. But I had a realization that, yeah, Gene Okerlund got the offer from the WWF, and you know, he went, he didn't get counteroffered by the AWA. But it's now my theory that this had to be the final straw for Mean Gene, because he took one look at these shirts and just said, you know what, F- this, I'm out of here. remember exactly where I was when that happened. I was listening to the radio call and not the TV because I had just parked at the Blackjack Lodge, now dearly departed, in southwest Vegas. It, I, I kind of got by on the generosity of the bartenders there because they would comp me food and drinks even if I wasn't playing enough money on the on the machines at the, at the bar. I'd usually be playing like 25 cent blackjack at most or like the five hands of poker for five cents each, something like that. So anyway, I'm hearing that, and I'm like, huh, this is runner on second and one out in the eighth inning. By the way, remember that phrase, one out in the eighth inning, for one coming up later. And I remember thinking that Moises Alou, like, well, there's no way he would have been able to make that catch. He, he did get off his feet, though. 
So I do think, upon review, he had a good chance at it. I know that Catching Hell documentary kind of covered all of that scientifically. And did Bartman reach over? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I think he was about even with the railing, which is why they didn't call fan interference, because the line goes straight up from the edge of the wall, or at least that's how it should be. And you got all the other people there. And the fact that they, what the Cubs fans did to him on that night, and I, I know that what happened after certainly didn't help. But what they did to him, if I'm Bartman, yeah, I probably would have gone into hiding too. But then I would have emerged and just, I would have, I would have turned and I would have started cheering for the White Sox, which sure as hell would have paid off a couple of years down the road. And the other thing to consider, with Moises Alou jumping up there, this is a guy who, it was publicly known that he would pee on his hands to make them harder so that he wouldn't have to wear batting gloves. So to go back to the Tim McCarver thing, you know, this is a guy who's actively peeing on his hands. So you probably would want to give him a little bit of room to make the catch anyway. And after last week with the Giants, I don't want to turn this into let's pick on Dusty Baker Central or whatever, but he should have had somebody throwing in the bullpen at the very least because Castillo went on to walk and then the whole inning fell apart. Anyway, enough of that particular heartbreak. We go back to Ken Resnick, who's got more on the Battle Royal coming up at the keel. And he's got chic Jerry Blackwell <laughs> joining him. I- I'm sorry, I still can't get over him wearing the whole getup. Here's this 400-pound guy who's <laughs> dressed up like a chic for whatever reason. Eventually, they put a stop to it later in the year, which is good. And he proclaims himself the favorite in the Battle Royal because, well, he's a really fat guy, and it's going to be really hard to throw him out. Well, first of all, I'm just a little bit bigger than 472 right now. I've been bucking up just a little. Eating McDonald's with and Kenny. you're talking about odds-on favorite. Everybody knows that I'm the odds-on favorite. The last time they had a Battle Royal, I won it. And do you know what my partner's doing right now? He's in a heavy workout. Throwing bricks. He's doing squats with 485. How much? 485 pounds. <laughs> he can pick people up with one hand and throw them about three rows back. That's well, let unsafe. me tell you something. The reason I'm out here alone is because he is working out. In jail. No, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for going for the cheap Ken Patera joke. I usually am not that lowbrow, but for God's sakes, this is an AWA show from 1984, and I'm really dying for material. They do go into how Patera is going to be facing Barry Windham on that card, which sounds like a hell of a match because there's a very brief window where these two guys cross because Patera's peak is when Wyndham is really, really young and Wyndham's peak is when Patera has gotten out of jail and is pretty much the end of the line for him at 87 through 89. So there's this brief window in 84, 85 where you have a pre-prison, pre-prison, <laughs> pre-prison Patera, try, try saying that three times fast. And Barry Windham, who has developed enough, but he's not quite to that 87 to 89 Windham level that we would all come to know and love. That's the one match, I guess, on that card that I would want to see. Who knows? Maybe somebody has actually seen that match and could report back to me. Like, perhaps somebody at ProWrestlingOnly.com. And you could check that out to explore other podcasts, match reviews, features, and retrospectives. Reviews of wrestling books, video games, matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows, and more. You can join the conversation by signing up at the PWO forums online for over a decade with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of 4.85 million threads. The message board is a vibrant community 
Whether you want to talk about a specific match in the match discussion archive, easy for me to say, like, say, Patera, Barry, Wyndham, take a deep dive into microscope form, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present, check all of that out and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. So why don't we just go right into the next match, which is superstar Billy Graham. He returns yet again after last week in the NWA. A year earlier, he is in the AWA, kind of a pit stop between his first WWF return. Well, I guess he was in the WWF before, and then he came back to win the title. So who really? It's all semantics. He's taking on Sammy Darrow who went on to found Windy City Pro Wrestling, which is an independent of some renowned over the years. Darrow actually has something in common with superstar Billy Graham, despite them being kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of one's an enhancement guy and one is a former world champion. They both were forced to retire in 1987 due to injuries of course i covered grams back many episodes ago against splashed by the one-man gang and he joins up with morocco to become his manager darrow was hurt in a work accident i guess it was non-wrestling related so he retired from there and went into the promotional game he was actually mentioned apparently on a 2012 episode of monday night raw by cm punk as his doctor and he used his real-life name, which I I guess probably a shout-out to the founder of Windy City Pro Wrestling, I presume. It's always interesting to hear CM Punk talk about doctors. You know, that that, that topic has kind of been explored ad nauseum. I've been looking through some AWA results, both online and in an e-book that I purchased by D.A. White. That's He kind of looked at various points in the AWA. He's got a book on 83, one on 84. They're relatively inexpensive, so I picked that up sort of as a research thing. And with Superstar Billy Graham, you just look at some of the results around this time period, and you're like, oh, my God, how the mighty have fallen. And I'm not talking about his physique. I'm talking about him losing to Jim Brunzel on the regular. And you think about where Graham was, even two years before, main eventing with Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden. Stuff like that. Not even because you're now six, seven years removed from him being the WWF champion. So enough time has passed where I don't want to say he's being forgotten, but Graham had just fallen so far by this point. He's got the karate thing going on. And one thing I should mention, Billy Robinson, who we saw earlier, once famously shot on Billy Graham because he didn't respect him for his in-ring ability because Graham was an example of a rare example of a champion from the 1970s who wasn't really equipped to handle himself if things got a little too real in the ring. And Billy Robinson didn't exactly respect the superstar, you know, getting over based on interviews and physique rather than in-ring ability. There's a chant from the crowd, and I don't know if these guys are just trying to amuse themselves at this point. Taekwondo! Taekwondo! A lot of wiseacres in the crowd in this one. And they seem to know years ahead of time the Barney Stinson, the Neil Patrick Harris character from How I Met Your Mother, his theory on you give him three syllables and people are willing to chant most anything. Shrimp fried rice. 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 And then Ted Mosby walked in and the chant just died like pretty much everything Ted Mosby touched in that series. So anyway... 
Rod Trongard goes to say something about Billy Graham's martial arts abilities and kind of makes a point about the history of it. And I was shocked to learn that what he said was actually accurate. And you see it in his hand there where you saw it momentarily. He has that black belt in Taekwondo, the Korean style of martial arts. Karate, of course, is the Japanese form of martial arts. Kung Fu, the Chinese form of martial arts. Now, that's not my area of expertise, and I left that bell in because he was totally correct. Taekwondo is from Korea, karate is from Japan, and kung fu is from China. And I thought that, you know, maybe some of it was mix and match, or, and oh, it's racist to think that that... No, it's actually 100% correct. And karate, of course, I knew came from the Okinawan prefecture of Japan. Because a lot of Karate Kid 2 was... I know I've made a couple of references to that movie at this point, but... Holy crap, a lot of that movie is on point with like the historical stuff, with the army base. It's a really good script. No no less than uh, Ralph Macchio has said so himself. It's very rewatchable, and I really need to go back and actually see it again. Especially that ice scene when they they have like the bet for him to do six to one odds to break through six pieces of ice. And Daniel has the... It's smart to actually kind of wait things out because it's probably pretty hot in there. I think it's it's the summertime, so and there's a lot of people around. So by doing that whole pray thing for like two minutes beforehand and then trying to break the ice, he softened it up. So good move by him. That would be an argument. If Chosen had said, we do not honor bet with guy who waits two minutes before trying to break the ice, but they probably should have had a shot clock. And then... The great, I'm sorry, this is way better than AWA TV and Superstar Billy Graham matches for sure. But Miyagi's reaction after Sato actually pays him out is so great, where he like waves the money in Sato's face. We do not honor Beth Coward. Do not embarrass Uncle again. Thank you, Sato. Pleasure to do business with you. Hey, you knew it all along, didn't you? You didn't have a doubt in your mind, man. No doubt. So what are we going to do? How are we going to spend it? What are we going to get? You get college tuition. We get Chinese food. Come. Honestly, having watched three movies of LaRusso, I think the Chinese food was probably a better investment than Daniel's college education. Although, with that said, you fly all the way to Okinawa to get Chinese food? What the hell? I mean, I would rather go to, like, America Town, like in the like in the Simpsons, and go there and find out what their take is on American cuisine. You, you go to Japan to get Chinese food? That's really weird. I mean, maybe it's not as weird as Billy Graham all of a sudden adopting a martial arts gimmick, and he scores with a back elbow and then does the thing, like, acting like he did karate, the where he's moving his hands, yeah, 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 like all that sort of stuff. I mean, look at him. He looks nothing like the guy from 1977. It is really kind of pitiful. And he gets a shot to the throat of poor Darrow off an Irish whip. And thank God that finishes. It was a chop or something or other. And I just pray to God that this thing is going to end soon. Unfortunately, we're less than 20 minutes into the video, which runs more than 40. So I'm looking for a savior at this point to the show. I will admit, though, 
it was kind of unexpected to hear the uh, song Dirty Laundry played as bumper music as they were going to commercial. It's like, hey, this is about as modern as Vern's going to get. With 115 pitches on the night, Brady Little is going to stick with his starter. Lift into the right field corner fair. Bernie Williams will dig. It's a ground rule double. It's second and third. As the Red Sox catch a break as that ball hops out of play. A flare in the center field. Out as Walker won't get it. The base running of Matsui. He comes home. Nobody covers second. Tie game. I have to clear the air with a few confessions about Game 7 of the 2003 American League Championship Series. Uh, First of all, I breached protocol late in the game by calling my friend Merrill on the phone to talk to him through the end of the game. It's usually something that is not done in our relationship, but I was very nervous. I'm outside. I'm literally smoking nails on the patio from the seventh inning on, and I'm watching the TV from out there. Because I'm, you know, sober enough to not smoke inside, but also drunk enough where I just could not stop smoking. So when Grady Little came out of the dugout, I remember yelling in the phone, keep him in the game, keep him in the game, keep him in the game. Now, obviously, that was a stupid decision based on the metrics and also the feel of the game. However, my blood alcohol level at the time was approximately 025 So, Grady Little, what was your excuse on that? Considering you had a left-handed hitter in Matsui who comes up, doubles into the corner, so now you get second and third, Posada. And what happens is Posada, he ties the game, he ends up on second because nobody covers the base. So now you got a runner on second and one out. And then they go to the bullpen, and the bullpen gets out of the inning, and the game is tied until Boone wins it in the 11th with a probably steroid and cooked bat-induced home run off Tim Wakefield. I'm sure that that is probably the case, considering they had two steroid-aided home runs earlier in the game by Jason Giambi. So I I don't really want to hear any of it. But isn't it weird that the 2003 AL and NLCS both ended with the Red Sox and the Cubs, then the teams that were the most cursed by fate, or however you want to call it, with one out in the bottom of the eighth inning, or in the top of the eighth inning in the Cubs' case. One out in the eighth inning... And they're on the mound, and that's when it all falls apart. Five outs away for each of them. I thought it was a really weird bit of symmetry. So we go back to Ken Resnick again, and he informs us that there are busloads of people coming in from all over Missouri. He just names a bunch of towns, and I'm thinking, yeah, they're probably coming in because you're probably promoting Hogan for the show, even though, you know, he left the territory six weeks ago. So in comes the man responsible for such false advertising that existed in other places like the Minneapolis show on Christmas, Vern Gagne, who, by the way, just like the Crusher, also born in 1926, and he's in the midst of an alliance with Bob Geigel to try and you know take over St. Louis, and Harley Race is involved, I guess, as well. They say that he is going to be on the show. There was a working relationship with the NWA, although it didn't really amount to much until you get Pro Wrestling USA later in the year. And I can't wait to do one of those shows from late 1984, especially with one of the creepy Bob Backlund promos. It's just a matter of figuring out which creepy Bob Backlund promo I want to talk about. So 
Oh, Unky Vern here has decided to come in and give us a history lesson. Right, it is the first, and St. Louis really is truly is the first city in America to uh, to do this. And I, I'm delighted to see it because it has gives the fans a chance to see the great wrestlers from both leagues uh, uh, right here in St. Louis. You know, the St. Louis Wrestling Club goes back uh, many, many years right here in St. Louis, and I'm back back to the days of Sam Muchnick, and I think uh, right we've been on television now for uh, 25 years straight. Uh, Sam had many great, great wrestlers uh, back in his day, championship matches with Luthez, Buddy Rogers, Dick Hutton, uh, Gene Kaniski, Pat O'Connor, the great Pat O'Connor, and uh, so many, many great matches. And, and this, uh, since Sam's re- retirement, uh, the tradition is carrying right on through. And I'm delighted to be here for a couple of reasons. And uh, as the first city in America to show both the NWA and the AWA, uh, especially on the same television station, I take my hat off to Channel 30 here uh, for doing that. It is a big first, and it's a big step in the right direction. And hopefully down the road that we're going to see uh, a lot of meetings that we want to take place, especially between the champions that have never been uh, done before. And thank you very much. I'm just happy to be here. Be a big night at Keel at 730. Jeez, I never thought that was going to end with Vern. I was expecting him to like, name drop George Hackenschmidt and Farmer Burns at that point. God. It's just when I thought it couldn't get any worse. And Vern is fine, but at least he's a law-abiding citizen, I guess, for the most part. I mean, once, you know, he got into his later years, stuff happened that I'm not going to go into. But, oh, crap, here comes Buck Zumhoff, Mr. Sex Offender level of its own. You know, when I heard about the $35,000, I even sent my money in, but it was too late. But down the road, I'll be down here defending my light heavyweight champion for the AWA. And now we know that Buck Zumhoff saying, no, I'm not going to be in the match because I didn't get my money in on time, is the most roundabout way of having somebody say, bring the kids down because it's safe for them you don't have a sex offender in the ring instead for our next match we have a nazi albeit a redeemed one i guess since he's a baby face baron von rashka i'm gonna go with rashka instead of rashki i've decided he's taking on tom rocky stone who i always thought kind of looks like mike scott the houston astros pitcher who broke out in 1986 drove the mets nuts in that nlcs by allegedly scuffing the ball He probably did. But Rocky Stone, Tom Stone, he never broke through the way Mike Scott did. Although he was in the opening match on AWA Super Sunday back in April of 83, falling to Brad Rangans in seven minutes. I think it's the only major card appearance by him, and that includes dark matches before pay-per-views. Now, this is just so AWA when you think about it, because every match up to this point has featured a heel as the star in the match. And so we get now get our first baby face in the Baron, and it has to be somebody with a Nazi goose-stepping gimmick. I mean, <laughs> so he starts doing that, and Stone bails uh, wisely. I don't think he's Jewish, but I think it's a good idea when, you know, the, uh, eventually you got to stand up and fight, though. I mean, that's pretty much the lesson of World War II. It's side headlock, because that's what St. Louis wants to start out. And we get little fisticuffs by Tom Rocky Stone. Uh, a little bit of fire from him. I, I like to see that. But when we go back to the side headlock again, they're just lying on the mat and they go for a, a pin attempt. Uh, the Baron does on Stone. And it's just a two guy. And nothing is happening in this match. So there's a guy yelling boring in the crowd, which. I'm going to say, I always pinpointed boring chants to 1986 WWF crowds, but clearly the the natives were getting restless in the AWA in early 1984. 
Stone uh, kind of chokes the Baron on the ropes. He's very aggressive. I, I love this Tom Stone. I wish we had seen more of him. He Yeah, he did get a little bit of offense in in some of his WWF matches. Uh, maybe I'll seek one of those episodes of Superstars out where that actually happens for him. It's really the only thing the Germans understand is being aggressive right back at them. I'm talking the Germans of the 40s. I'm not talking nowadays. I mean... You know, it, it, things, things have changed there, uh, at least I hope. A knee to the gut off a whip by the Baron, so that is how he regains control. And uh, the, the arm work by him is just dull and boring, and this is where I start thinking about what, why, am I, why did I choose this show again? Shouldn't I just talk about something else? You get a little bit of offense from Stone, but it doesn't really amount to much. Quarter whip gets reversed. And then Baron reverse Baron reverses a corner whip, hip tosses Stone out. Then the Baron goes for a corner whip, that gets reversed. Stone gets a hip toss, but the Baron clearly starts going over for the hip toss before Stone even puts out his arm. And I I'm really starting to question what it is I'm doing with my life. By the way, that gets a two count at all things. Another reversal of an Irish whip, because you got to keep going back to that same spot. And it's third or fourth damn time in this match. A backdrop by the Baron, who then starts goose-stepping around the ring. Back elbow, and then he misses on an elbow drop. So Stone goes up the second rope, hits an axe handle, and then on the second one, he goes back to the well, and he gets caught in the claw hold. And that is how the Baron picks up the win. And I just plead with God to give me better matches on this, or maybe I should do a better job vetting these friggin' shows, because this was boring, this was more boring than all the previous matches on this, I, you know what, maybe that's unfair, because I liked it when Tom Stone was in control, but this is kind of like, if you're like, oh, name a match that's boring, or describe a boring match, just take the what I described this match as, at some point, what I need to do is just, I swear to God, some of these, I don't even need to tell you what's going on in these because it doesn't matter. Nothing's happening. It's completely ridiculous. Who? What are we trying to promote by running this match out there? I'd be better off just reading song lyrics from now on. I mean, it's just a matter of me picking out a song. God. Las Vegas, side of the greatest wrestling event in history, Light of Mania. And here's the challenger who drinks the lot because it's less growing, the mass marauder. And here's the champ who drinks light because it tastes great, Jesse the Body Ventura. Light of Mania, brought to you by America's favorite light beer, Miller Light. Jesse the Body Ventura is ready. Who is the mass marauder? And is he ready? Five minutes. Who is this guy? Sure, he's not a great technical wrestler, but Jesse the Body Ventura is up next to hopefully salvage what's left of this show. He's taking on Jake the Milkman Milliman, the AWA's answer to Daniel Bryan, the, <laughs> the underdog with the big beard. Although, he won that turkey on a pole match, and I could just picture the promos that Daniel Bryan and his character these days would be cutting if there was such a match in WWE, like all the things that were done to that turkey on a farm or in cages or stuff like that. Really fun to kind of think about. Jesse is in military gear, which I thought was unusual, but Trongard speaks up, says that he's been spending time in Grenada, which... (laughs) Is a little strange considering you just had the invasion angle of Grenada 
in October of 83, which I, I know it was an actual military event, but it was all just kind of stagery or whatever to restore a democratic government and to get Ronald Reagan over with the people in advance of an election year. I mean, 84 is just around the co- corner. There's also kind of a wag the dog deal to distract the populace from the uh, Marine barracks getting bombed in Beirut, which took place only two or three days before the invasion of Grenada. And Jesse, when he comes in, as it was in the WWF here in the AWA, especially when he's a single, he certainly takes his time getting off all the earrings and his shirt and all the accessories that he had. And he's talking smack, not in the Daniel Bryan SmackDown sort of, well, I guess maybe it sort of is, and talking to the people in the front row. All those guys who are yelling boring, they're not going to yell that at Jesse because they have a little bit too much respect for him and his banter. But he's actually yelling at Gene Okerlund, tells him to get in the ring and pose sometime. What a great relationship with Jesse and Okerlund from an on-camera perspective. Just the just the kind of adversarial relationship. It was very simple, but always effective. Seeing Jesse still here in the AWA, because he doesn't depart until, I think it's May or June, because we see him in a June 1984 show that I covered over a year ago in the WWF, wondering him as the top babyface in the AWA, having him as your sort of Graham Hogan character. I think it's something that objectively could have worked, except there are a few issues with him. Number one, and this is probably the most important one, he is definitely not Vern's type of wrestler because you know, he's, he's really more physique and promos than he is in ring. Like, he can't really get down and do mat wrestling, you know, the way Vern wanted out of his champions. Number two, which is kind of related to that, he lacked Hulk Hogan's working ability to kind of, yeah, he could sell and all that as a heel. But the problem is, he, I don't know if he had the ability to kind of get garner sympathy as that top babyface the way Hogan could. I think he had all, a lot of the other tools to do this, but the sort of little things that Hogan would do in the ring, I never really saw out of Jesse, partly because he he never really was a babyface. And number three, and this one would have stopped him later on, those health issues that he had with the blood clots certainly would have crept up at some point. And if you have him on top, I probably would have exacerbated it, and it certainly would have limited his ceiling in the long run. And I don't think Vern would have thought, hey, maybe I could use him as an announcer, because God knows you have to have Rod Trongard as your freaking solo announcer like he's Vin Scully. So honestly, Jesse jumped at the right time in June. And he hits a pile driver on Milliman. There's not much to this match. That is how he wins. There's zero offense from the future milkman in this one. And Jesse looked kind of good here, but his talents were more outside of the ring, as pretty much everybody knows, just as a talker. And as, you know, I'm, I actually consider him the greatest commentator of all time because I would rank him over Bobby Heenan simply on the basis of he would cover this sort of as a real sport, 
yeah, maybe he wasn't as funny as the brain, but Heenan and his wise, but Ventura, I mean, and his wisecracks would also be great too. I mean, who could forget? What do you say in Shivani? You could shoot a guy if he's outside the ring as long as he's outside the ring. I mean, stuff like that, but also covering it seriously like it was a sport is something that I like out of my commentators as well. And I think Jesse brought all that stuff when when he was invested in the show, which he pretty much was during his WWF run. And some of the WCW stuff, is, it, it's a little spotty. I like his work with Tony Schiavone and not, not really anybody else. Him and Jim Ross is a pretty poor pairing. So all I can say is thank God that Jesse Ventura made that jump. And I'm not just saying that because it led directly to that Light of Mania ad, which is pulled off my YouTube channel. So feel free to give me a subscription on YouTube. I think I'm up to about 880 subscribers now. I'm going to try to get more videos on there, but only 120 away before I can finally start getting <laughs> ad revenue again for the damn Ted Williams and the old timers game thing that has like a trillion views. Yeah, Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, say, say, say. It was number one around this time, January of 1984. And I I know I've probably covered this on the podcast before. I'm starting to forget stuff. But just in case I haven't, if you're down, if you're troubled, if you need a helping hand, all you need to do, just Google say, 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 single, and then go to the image search and just look at the album cover of I'm looking at it right now because it's on my wall. Among the best $8 I ever spent. So obviously I'm a little bit frustrated with this show, which is why I'm glad that Say 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 was number one around that time. And I'm looking for something to just bring me salvation. And who better than the great Nick Bockwinkle, still with Bobby Heenan, who, as I said, he's not gone until September, which, by the way, I think is the real death blow to the AWA because he provided a great deal of credibility. And also, I think that the WWF used him better with a wider variety of guys getting him over. So the gangster Nick Bockwinkle, when you get later on, you know, he might feel the need to put a cap in somebody's ass because things are nearing the end for his career. And, I mean, it's kind of like... Taking a 10-minute misconduct with five five seconds left in a hockey game. I mean, what's the freaking point? Oh, a 10-minute penalty, but I have to serve five seconds of it. That's that's what Nick Barkwinkle is like, and that's why I think he's a true gangster here at the end of his career. But will his promo actually bring salvation to this godforsaken show? My thoughts are simply this, that for years, the old promoter Sam Muchnick uh, was very strictly NWA and denied... Uh, the accessibility of the AWA. Now, St. Louis has always been a leading wrestling capital of the world, and now it is uh, setting the tempo and the pace again because for the first time, the AWA and the NWA will both be represented here in St. Louis. And it is the intention of the AWA and myself as the heavyweight champion of the world to actually issue a challenge at this point to the winner of the match between Ric Flair and the winner of the Battle Royal, whoever that may be. It is our intention to take and bring to St. Louis for the first time in the world of professional wrestling what would amount to 
the Super Bowl of wrestling. Honestly, I think Nick Bockwinkel is a little handcuffed by the go out there and talk for a minute about the history of wrestling in St. Louis and NWA, AWA, and what that represents. Oh, and make sure to say Super Bowl of Wrestling, even though the term may or may not be trademarked by the NFL. I I can ask about that, but obviously you can't say the Super Bowl these days, you know, in in conjunction because the NFL will sick their dogs on you. The Super Bowl of Wrestling, a term that goes back to the movie The Wrestler with Vern Gagne using that. Like, we got to get the leagues together, which is something that Vern himself said in the earlier promo. So I'm left a little disappointing because Bach didn't say he was going to put a cap in somebody's ass, which is fine. He's going to end up losing this title to Jumbo Saruta in a couple of weeks anyway. And Saruta holds the belt for about three months before dropping it to Ricky Martel, who has a pretty lengthy reign of over a year and a half. So Heenan is standing there the entire time. He kind of turns his back to the camera so you can see the uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan thing on his back, whatever it was. It's It was one of those jumpsuits that you didn't see as much in the WWF because I, I, th- I think he might have switched his wardrobe over. So Brain, save us. Save us, please. It will show the people in professional wrestling and St. Louis that you are the greatest champion in the world. Period. There will be one champion. That's my plan. And uh, for this big battle royal coming up, I mean, you got the top names in professional wrestling. Harley Race, Wahoo McDaniels, Barry Windham. I mean, you just name them. The list goes on and on and on. Dory Funk, Dick Slater. And I, if I can get my travel plans arranged, I am going to be at the keel this evening. I'm going to be sitting there in attendance, and I'm going to be watching. Then I'm going right to the phone, and I'm calling Nick Bockwinkle, and I'm going to let him know. That's why we're successful. We do our homework. Oh, dear God, he's saying he's going to go to the keel tonight, which means that this may have aired on February 3rd. I don't know what the hell to put as the friggin' date on this show. Should I put the YouTube date? Should I put the date with the, the internet results? Should I put what Heenan says? I mean, I don't know. Heels lie, so I'm not. I'm probably not going to go with the Heenan thing. Probably they probably told him that it was going to air, and then they aired it a week early. I mean, that that's pretty much the AWA for you. But what I'm learning is even the best promos, even the greatest promo guys in the world, they need kind of an antagonist to talk about. Jake Roberts is a fine talker, but Jake Roberts is much better. If he's addressing his feud with Ted DiBiase, Rick Martel, Rick Rude, etc., etc. Nacho, Nacho Man. I want to be a Nacho Man. For our last bout, we have one of the great enhancement talents of all time, and it's got nothing to do with anything he did in ring. It's just that Nacho Barrera has one of the best cage match pages out of anybody. You go to his page. And his career spans from 1973 to 1993. And his record during all of those years is 0 and 103. Not a single win, not even like an accidental DQ or count out win. Probably because they didn't do angles on the AWA shows. So there was nothing like, like that time the guy beat Ted DiBiase right before WrestleMania 7 because Virgil came down, distracted him, and he ended up winning by count out. None of that for the old Nacho Man. It kind of reminds me of my my wife before the Super Bowl. She's like, yeah, I cheer for the nachos in the Super Bowl, which I think is a pretty fair thing to do if you have no dog in the fight. Nacho is taking on Steve O. This is not the Steve O from Jackass. This is Steve 
Olsonowski, God almighty, I have trouble with the Polish names apparently, and he had success in Georgia back in the early 80s. In fact, he held the national title, which is basically the Georgia heavyweight title, for lack of a better term, for a huge chunk of 1981 before actually losing it to Ken Patera, who I had mentioned earlier on in the show. Later in 84, in St. Louis, as a matter of fact, Steve O was teamed up with Marty Jannetty in a bunch of matches. So this is very young Marty Jannetty before he would have hooked on with Shawn Michaels. They mentioned, uh, or why, why did I say they? It's only Rod Trongard, for God's sakes. This is like, oh, Steve O is returning. It's like he'd been in the territory since August. Maybe he hadn't been on TV for a while. Maybe they just forgot about him because they actually had stars until like three weeks ago, and now they're all gone. So this is why you see a guy like Steve O on TV. You're, you're not going to believe how this match actually starts. starts with a side headlock. And for cripes sakes, could somebody do something different? Could I at least just get arm drag, drop kick, baby face, generic offense, number 17, something like that? I, I, you know, I'm realizing now that I don't know exactly when this was taped. It could have possibly been taped on Christmas in Minneapolis based on some of the results I've seen. People left their house on Christmas to see Steve O take on Nacho Barrera. Think about that, okay? And how the AWA may have alienated some of their fans. People left their families and their house to watch this match, very possibly. They roll around on the mat for a little bit, and there's some you know generic arm work, and the guy once again starts up a boring chant as Nacho takes control of this match, of all things. At one point in this match, Steve-O rolls up Nacho, and the referee just stands there like a complete moron. Like, Nacho's shoulders are down for, like, five seconds, and then the referee just sort of realizes it's, like, lazy, clueless. I'm like, what the hell is going on in this territory? No wonder why people are fleeing in droves. Absolutely nobody gives a crap. And Steve-O uh, kicks out Nacho, ends up running the ropes, and then just sort of stops. We, we get that thing with the awkward pause. And then a side headlock, yeah, I know, yet another one, and a backdrop suplex out of the side headlock, and a second rope knee drop by Steve-O, but Nacho actually kicks out of it at two, which is pretty amazing, and then a backdrop and a running drop kick, which, you know, was the finisher for Vern Gagne in The Wrestler, but that's only setting up the airplane spin, which is always neat to kind of see, especially with a fat guy like nacho on the shoulders i mean, nacho kind of looks like bloated adrian adonis from 1986 but without all the feminine sort of stuff and he gets dropped at three count for steve-o crowd does not give a shit at all about this match in fact there's more heckling than anything else i'd play the clips of the hecklers but it's kind of hard to pick out like the various time cues of it and it makes me wonder are they pissed over the lack of stars i would say Yes, but also the in-ring action it leaves a lot to be desired. Seven seconds to go. Brooks. Dante Stallworth catches it, stays in bounds. He's going to have to score on this one, and he's got a chance. Getting a couple of blocks, laddles it over to Michael Lewis. Back to McAllister. Still alive. Oh, and they got oh it. Jerome Payton with the catch. He dives into the end zone for the touchdown. All sorts of incredible plays along the line for the Saints to stay alive, pending the extra point by John Carney. And he missed. No! 
He missed the extra point wide right. Oh, my God. How could he do that? That play was so incredible by the Saints against the Jaguars to keep their playoff hopes alive by scoring there, pending the extra point, and then he misses from 20 yards out because, of course, that's what the extra points were at that time. It's much more commonplace from 33 yards for guys to miss it, but back then, it's just completely unheard of. I think it was probably the first one he had missed all year. So my idea with all these sports moments is to make it personal somewhat, And with Jacksonville and New Orleans, I'm living in Vegas. That game was not on television by any means. I heard about it later. So, why don't I, hmm, any Saints fans that I know? Hey, Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters. I have a sad yet amusing story to tell you. I've been a Saints fan since 1987. And in 2003, December of 2003, during the last week of exams at college, my appendix ruptured. So, it was like around December 7th, 8th, something like that. I had to go into the hospital uh, where the appendix ruptured. So the doctor wanted to keep me in the hospital, but I wanted to go home because it was Christmas. So I begged and begged and begged, and he said, okay, you can go home on Sunday. So I literally left my hospital bed in Fredonia, New York, where I was going to college, and drove right to a sports bar in Buffalo, New York, to watch the Saints and Jaguars game. Now I have a good friend who started watching football every week with me, and at first just watched the Saints games with me, but then he did his own team, so decided it was the Jaguars because he loved Fred Taylor. So this was kind of a big game because it was my team versus his team, even though his was kind of fake. So now I didn't really understand pain meds and how it was going to feel coming out of the hospital. And I just did, I was new to the whole thing. So I, I didn't know what to expect. So when I left, I had gotten medication at the hospital and felt like a million bucks. And as I was watching this game, I'm starting to feel worse and worse and get more and more pain. And I'm thinking I'm going to end up back in the hospital by halftime. And I didn't understand that I just needed more pain medication. Uh, but anyway, so I'm watching this game and it's a whatever, pretty much forgettable game. And Aaron Brooks is being Aaron Brooks and it gets to the point where I'm in so much pain that they're not going to win. There's what a minute or less left. And I said to my buddy, just, you know, take me home, get me out of here. Congratulations. The Jaguars win. So we get not even two or three blocks down the road. And my other friend who was at the sports bar that was kind of paying the tab calls and says, turn the car around. You're not going to believe what just happened. The Saints just tied it. So we turn the car around. And then, of course, he calls right back and says, never mind. They missed the extra point. And uh, that was me in misery about pain 10, uh, trying to figure out what the hell just happened uh, in the Saints game. The laterals and blown up appendixes and missed extra points. Wow, a lot of misery in these sports moments that I've been playing so far. I should make an effort to keep it alive. I did try to find Patrice Bergeron's first NHL goal, but there's no video of it out there. And besides, it leads to a story where I had bet on the game in Vegas and the Bruins were losing 3 nothing, and I lost my ticket anyway, so I didn't care to look for it. And then they came back and won 4-3. So there's more misery there anyway. You can listen to more of Steve on the Sportscasters podcast. There'll be a new one out later this week, I am sure. Although, I think he's gone through four episodes of Season 9. So there is a very extensive back catalog out there. And also, I encourage you to check out our Vantage Point Retro Wrestling Podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn. This week, take a look at big-time wrestling from Detroit from 1978. That should be an interesting look. And on the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing, Mike Crockett and Brian Malonis, Ring of Honor's own and exclusive, except for the indie shows that he can work, like the show that he's running up in Derry, New Hampshire, Astromania, at the end of March. I forget, <laughs> I listened to the show a couple days ago, and I can't remember what was discussed, but do check out the wrestling, oh, they talked about weird gimmick matches, that's right, the worst gimmick matches, and there are a lot of them. 
Personally, I think the worst one, and I don't know, I think it's because of Halloween Havoc 92, Coal Miner's glove matches are, are terrible. I don't, I don't feel like I've seen one of those. Also, not a fan of strap matches. Because all it is is that stupid, oh, one, two, three, and then the referee resets and the rules are always changing. That, uh, that's that's my opinion on that. But wait, we have one more segment on this show to maybe salvage this sucker, and it's Ken Resnick again, and it's Jesse Ventura, and he's got Masa Saito with him. Now, Jesse and Adrian Adonis were known as the East-West Connection because Adonis is built from New York City. Ventura being billed from San Diego despite having a thick Minnesota accent. <laughs> so Ventura, they are the Far East-West connection because of Saito being from Japan. Now what I do know is that this interview will not touch the one from the January 1st show or the one that was labeled January 1st where Okerlund is conducting the interview and Ventura has the block of wood that Saito says he can break with his head. But the block of wood had not been gimmicked, so Saito hits his head on it and nothing happens. And there's uproarious laughter. The, the promo itself is actually on YouTube. And that is the show I actually set out to do when I wanted to do AWA from January of 84. But instead, I got this one. You know, St. Louis, you've seen Jesse the Body a couple of times in the past. But Jesse the Body was always held back in St. Louis. Well, no more. Now, like they've been telling all these people out here, they're going to get a chance to see NWA stars as well as AWA stars. And one thing you got to remember, What's Ken Beatnik, the stars are not above you. They're standing right next to you. But now, St. Louis, you know, a lot of questions have been asked about Jesse the Body Ventura and Mr. Saito, the Far East-West Connection. Well, I've renamed Mr. Saito. He is what? Mr. Torture. Mr. W- Torture, because Saito-san tortures, tortures opponents in the ring, and then Jesse the Body comes in and cleans house, and together we are just oh so successful. And one last quick word, they want to know how come Jesse the Body is growing his chest hair out. I wanted to ask you about that. Well, the reason is a good friend of mine, Tom Selleck, called me, and he he said it's the only way he can win the Jesse the Body lookalike contest. Ain't that oh, right, Mr. Saito? I have a hard time believing that one. Personally, I think Jesse was just being lazy and didn't want to shave his chest hair. And he spun that yarn to kind of cover for it. So I admire his moxie on that, just as I admire Jesse's moxie on other issues. Calling Saito Mr. Torture, very much in line with his former tag team partner in the WWF, Mr. Fuji, who kind of had that torture thing. I can imagine them going on Family Feud and being introduced as the Torture Family. The Torture Family, ready for action. Of course, I I think I just said torture instead of torture instead of torture, as in torture is in violation of the Geneva Accords. Okay, anyway. But maybe we got one final thing to salvage this. And this is pretty rare because... I don't know if I've ever heard him talk at at great length. This one's only 25 seconds, but I'm going to cherish this because I love Masa Saito in the ring. Just a big, burly dude who likes to hurt people. Like a Japanese version of Haku. And I'm, I'm a fan of him as well. But you don't really ever get to hear him talk. And now you get 25 seconds of Masa Saito. Save the show! You know what, Japanese uh, Mr. Saito are best in the world. Strong man. You know, I'm master karate. I'm master judo. And I'm Olympic player, too. I'm very, I'm smart, too. 
You know, Jason Bradley Benchino, my good partner, who have team up, very strong, lot of power. Fans, that's all the time we've got. You know, I don't care if his English isn't the greatest in the world. I would not interrupt Masa Saito if I was Ken Resnick. Even if the show is nearing its end, I would just let him talk and have them roll credits, although the AWA doesn't roll credits, so they're not going to salvage things that way. Oh, and Saito talking and seeing him and Patera reminds me. Do you realize McDonald's lost their trademark to the Big Mac? in the eu so now big mac can be used for other things such copyright things forever amused me the fact that they would actually lose that uh i don't know makes me laugh as somebody who hasn't eaten at mcdonald's in 23 years and that is thank god how they wrap up for awa television for i'm gonna say january 14th 1984 and manny lifts one into deep left center field Guillen back at the wall goodbye and Ramirez walking to first base and pointing to his teammates. Well, that was a fun one. Manny Ramirez with the deciding blow in Game 5 of the American League Division Series between the Red Sox and Oakland A's. And I figure not a lot of heartbreak for anybody in the audience for that one because probably not very many Oakland A's fans, not too many people care about them. Even Kyler Murray or whatever his name is, the Oklahoma quarterback, now choosing football over baseball after Oakland had chosen him sixth overall, I think it was, in the draft. But I enjoyed that series very much. It was the last thing that I watched before I moved to Las Vegas, and that was also the series where the Red Sox fell behind two games to none. And then in the middle of game three, I spilled candle wax all over the living room, like the uh, coffee table. It was like a wood, it was a crappy wood coffee table. So I kept spilling candle wax on the table on purpose uh, for the next couple of games, <laughs> which I believed was actually causing the Red Sox to win. Probably a sign that I never really had much of a grasp on sanity and that an AWA show from January of 84 isn't going to break me or anything like that. But as for next week, I do have a plan for next week's show. Which this weekend, I think I've explained, and I mentioned it a while back, that I'll be attending a wedding in New Jersey. this <laughs> Jersey City, New Jersey, by the way. And I'll find out how good my wife's Hilton points are to find out if in that double tree we're going to be facing Manhattan or Secaucus. This is kind of a big difference between the two. And this wedding between a gal from the Midwest, Ohio, and a fellow with Jamaican parents. And the girl from Ohio's parents may not be the most, uh, you know, enamored with people of color. I don't know. We shall see. But a wedding in New Jersey, I thought, hmm, what could I possibly do to do that justice and to tie it into wrestling? Well, I'm going to go back to October of 1985, just like Marty McFly, but I'm going to go three weeks ahead of him, October 5th, and... A wedding in New Jersey on Saturday night's main event from the World Wrestling Federation. Yes, there's Hulk Hogan versus Nikolai Volkov in a flag match, and Andre the Giant taking on the Heenan family. But that show is all about one thing. It is the wedding of Uncle Elmer. And I had talked about Jesse Ventura's commentary earlier and how he swears, you know, how I think he's the best. But that show where he's making fun of Uncle Elmer and his wife is what he claims to be the greatest thing that he ever did. So I think I'm I think this one is going to be plenty enjoyable. A lot of shenanigans at that wedding. I'm going to have a few comments on Andre's attire that he wore to the ceremony. 
I felt he could have dressed a little bit better, even though Giants have a more limited wardrobe. So next week, WWF Saturday Night's main event, October 5th, 1985. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to spread the word about Greetings Mountown. One way to do that is, you know, through social media, through message boards. And that's fine. I wish I could do more of it myself. But I work in a dungeon basement in the middle of Massachusetts with no reception and no access to Twitter on the guest Wi-Fi that I have to use. I mean, I have a whole host of other things I could say, but I'm just going to leave it at that. And I thank you for your five-star reviews on iTunes slash Apple Music. If you could go ahead and give me one of those, that does provide what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying Greetings from Allentown. All 103 episodes, plus specials, plus Adam's Vision podcast, the whole Megillah. And yes, I will have one coming up. That that Royal Rumble one is actually going to happen. We just have to kind of schedule a time to get together. I know Steve's going to be on the Place to Be podcast coming up very soon, looking at a MSG house show from early 1989. So be on the lookout for that. And now the cat is yelling at me off mic and is sprinting around the basement. So it's probably time to go feed her. So I'm going to sign off. But do tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. gives the fans a chance to see the great wrestlers from both leagues.